Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives. And this is the Knife Perspective number 079. Nothing smart-ass tonight, just uh, a good show for good people. Um, you know, I, I'm going a little off script here, Kyle. He'll, he'll either edit it out or he won't. <laughs> but um Little little behind the scenes secret. What we've started doing is we actually record the section with the guest ahead of time. That way, they don't have to sit through the the thirty or forty five minutes that you poor <laughs> are stuck with to to get to the good quality material. And uh, I'm not gonna lie, uh, this one hit your old Uncle Dan pretty hard. <clears throat> so I apologize. Um, don't worry. Um, what for you is the end of the show was the beginning of for me. So there, there's going to be some smart assery. There is a good chance that, uh, that by the time we get through dealers and sponsors and that sort of thing, I, I, I will be back to my old entertaining self. But, um, yeah, first side of this is going to be a little rough for everybody. Yeah. How are you doing tonight, Kyle? I'm doing pretty good. I've spent, Today was a little rough uh, getting back in the swing of working since we've been uh, on vacation. We went out to Boston, Cape Cod, ate some good lobster, uh, saw some whales. Um, that was awesome. How did you have your lobster roll? Uh, so we got one. We got one that was butter and one that was the uh, mayo based. So we had one of each, and then I had my lobster boiled, which is my favorite. Yeah. And uh, that was at the Lobster Pot in Provincetown, and uh, that place is awesome. When I ordered my lobster, the guy goes, uh, how big do you want? I think today our largest one in the tank is seven pounds. I was like. <laughs> uh, hang I'll on. Let me check with the bank. I'm not sure that <laughs> is cleared. I think I'll have like a pound and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, they had uh, they had one that was they had mussels and. Uh, the corn and uh, red potatoes and everything. It was, it was delicious. It was a good meal, Good, but uh, yeah, the whale watching was really cool. We saw some humpbacks and some fin whales, which I never really knew much about them, but uh, have since researched myself and educated myself. They're the, the second biggest mammal on earth uh, behind the blue whale. And um, the lady told us that was the naturist on the boat. Uh, apparently they're known as the greyhounds of the ocean because they can they can travel about 1700 miles a day can you imagine that That's um a- not like without a car or a plane or man we drove uh what was that 900 or 800 miles from chicago to ba or cape cod and uh i can't even imagine going 1700 miles even in a car so uh doing that in a plane would be long enough too 
but I can't imagine like wagging my my feet and moving it. We uh we saw some minky or we saw a minky whale, I believe it was, and uh it was just so cool to watch the humpbacks like do their bubble net and then you'd see like all the bubbles and the water turn colors and then you see this huge mouth come up uh through the center of it. It was so cool. That reminds me of a dream I had one time. <laughs> I'm sure. But we swam, did a bunch of swimming. The The hotels that my wife picked out was really awesome. And yeah, it was just good to spend some quality time with the family and forge some some pretty cool memories with the, the kids and stuff. Yeah. Making memories, buddy. Making memories. Yeah, they're actually old enough that I think these memories are going to stick. So that's pretty cool, too. I remember when I was like 12, we went out to Cape Cod and went whale watching and stuff. And I still remember uh, seeing that we actually got to see a humpback whale jump and land. That was super spectacular. That's pretty cool. I, uh, I have not seen whales yet. Well, or you should put one. that on your bucket list because it was pretty cool. Hey, can we split the difference and go with whale sushi? <laughs> I don't know if they do whale sushi, but uh, in Japan, yeah. which is the only reason I'm going to Japan. <laughs> well, and uh, the Kodokan birthplace of judo, but mostly I just want to be able to look a patchouli stinking hippie in the eye and go, yeah, those whales taste pretty good. <laughs> but if you're ever in Provincetown up on the, the tip of the Cape of Cape Cod, Captain John's was the boat company. And um, I can't remember the name of the person that, gave me that uh recommendation but he was one of the, he was a knife maker so thank you and there our boat was awesome there was only like 40 people on it so we were able to move around all the different decks and stuff and move side to side to see the whales uh swimming under the boat and everything it was really cool very cool yeah and just for the record i don't want to alienate anybody did some part of the patchouli sneaking hippies was a joke <laughs> Probably with my dad that's uh, doing any of that. Uh, that's all right. let's, unconfirmed, let's, though. Yeah, let's uh, let's get to dealers. Let's uh, you know, it's all about the Benjamins on this show. Wait a minute. Oh wait, are we Our supposed to sponsors. do sponsors? It got deleted. Oh, what happened shit. here, Dan? Um, look, hey, you know what? I was not the only one on show notes today. Do, 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 do. There was some confusion. There was the little red line, which is not me. Um, hey, look, there's sponsors. Oh, look at that. Just like that. <laughs> Just good people. All six of you that are listening tonight do not have to pay for the show. We've had some fine, fine individuals pick up that tab for you. And a great way to show your appreciation is to support or even buy from these people. A good example of these people are Jance. Jance Knife Supplies. And if you use discount code KP Grips, you'll get 10% off of handle materials. Now that's handle materials only. So if you're buying a bunch of stuff, check out the handle materials first. Go through that process. Use your uh, KP Grips code. It'll give you 10% off and then you can get everything else. Yeah, I've heard that if you call call and talk to them, they'll uh, they can do it too via the, if you're, a phone ordering kind of person too. Yeah, that would involve interacting with other people. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we're an industry that self-selects to not do that. Yeah. 
I was talking to uh, completely unrelated. I was talking to Luke from USA Knife Maker, and he goes, uh, "We still get people that like co- photocopy the order form out of the catalog that we used like way long ago, and they hand write their order in it and staple a check and mail it to them." I was like, "All right." <laughs> Um, another great sponsor and supporter of the podcast is Atlas Materials. Um, you know, normally I would swing into like the whole 1950s radio voice to talk about our sponsors, but Atlas on a personal note has been really good to me. Um, they've really worked with me on finding thicknesses on materials that are the most efficient now that I'm looking at doing some production stuff. Back when I was a onesie twosie, uh, they were still really good to work with. They'd help me find the materials I needed. But now that I'm doing a little more volume, they are equally supportive of helping me find thicknesses and the right materials that are the most efficient for the CNC guys. So we're minimizing our wastage. So really, if you're if you're doing one or two knives and you want to make a pop, as we all know, I'm a big fan of the faux ivory. It's a great way to go. If you're looking at doing some bigger runs, uh, reaching out them to them directly, um, they can work with you to find just the right material for your, your bulk orders as well. Very cool. Uh, Phoenix Abrasives is also a great supporter of the podcast. Uh, I got to spend a lot of time with Greg and Sean. Uh, those two guys are awesome. And you can use discount code KP10 for 10% off all your orders there. Uh, that's belt, sandpaper, safety supply stuff that they sell. Uh, it works for all of it. So used a bunch of the incinerator belts, uh, grinded a whole bunch of the MagnaCut uh, bushcrafters and pocket bushcrafters that I'm working on right now. And uh, Ridge Runner Blades, um, they are, as y'all will find out shortly, a dealer for us as well. But legitimately good people. Uh, Taylor Grinds recently got hired on and has really done some phenomenal things for them. For the the two of you that are enthusiasts versus the four of us that are the makers that listen to this show, they do production as well as custom knives. They've got some really good selection and some really solid price points. If you're in the area, it's really worth going by and seeing them but their online presence is good and it is really growing. Taylor's doing a really good job of uh, curating uh, their selection. Uh, He's finding some really good stuff. Um, And it turns out that uh, we are both uh, alumni members of Camp Morningwood. Um, Yeah. You never know when you're going to meet somebody. Uh, The world's kind of getting smaller. It it, it turns out that uh, he and I have walked some of the same ground. Very cool. And uh, we've got Set Supplies sponsoring the podcast, Spencer, Ed, and Todd. Uh, they're doing some really cool stuff that we talked about on the last podcast, uh, making some slingshots and all sorts of stuff, the resins and things that Spencer's doing. So make sure you check those out and check out uh, a bunch of the collaboration stuff that um, they're all working on together. I. I've enjoyed working with them and uh, it's not their official tagline, but it should be. And I feel like if we all work together, we can pressure them to accept it, but it's a solid example of um, makers uh, for us, by us. Um, They're all makers and they're all making stuff that we need and they're doing it 
with the perspective of what does a maker need? Mm-hmm. And it's starting to show in their materials. Yeah. Yep. They're doing some pretty cool stuff. And they're good guys also. And the last sponsors of the podcast, Dogwood Custom Knives and Cage Daily Knives. So make sure you check those guys out. And you can find Dan and Kyle's knives at Knife Center. And you can find Dan's knives at the Cook Station, Blade HQ, Ridge Runner, and Asheville Crafted Edge. And you can find my knives at Northside Cutlery. And you can find my knife making tools at Phoenix Abrasives and Housemade.us and uh, my filework books at USA Knife Maker and Jance Knife Supply. So, as well as my website. And, uh, yeah. When, when are we going to be honest and, uh, Quit saying Dogwood and Cage Daily and just just put our wives' names there. <laughs> I don't plan on ever being honest. You know, it, <laughs> you know, at times like this, you know, you got to be honest. <laughs> uh, uh, so Guildwatch um, and knife shows. There's a knife show that's coming up super yeah. fast. Uh, Cindy Aiken messaged me and asked me if uh, we could get this on here. It was a show that I didn't even know about until she messaged me. Uh, it's the Idaho, uh, knife association. You the what? The what? The Idaho. I'm sorry. You said you were what? (laughs) The Idaho knife associations, 2023 traditional and tactical knife show. Uh, it's August 11th and 12th in Meridian, Idaho. Um, so on Friday, there's a $35 tickets that has, uh, hors d'oeuvres, an hors d'oeuvre buffet and two drink tickets. And that uh, ticket also gets you in on Saturday. Uh, Cindy said you do need to pre get that ticket because the caterer needs to know how many people he needs to make food for. Uh, So you have to pre purchase that. So that's a pretty solid model for kind of a little meet and greet with uh, some food, a couple of drinks. Yeah. $35 is like not much more than you'd spend for like uh, a drink or two at a regular restaurant. Uh, and if you get at least one appetizer, you're way above that. So um, I'm clearly going to miss it this year, but th- that's going on my calendar. I like the concept. It's like a classy pit. Yeah. And so they'll have uh knife sales and stuff there too uh, for Friday. Uh, it's kind of like the early bird type thing. And then on Saturday is the, there's no hors d'oeuvres, but that's $6 and you can buy tickets at the door for that one to get in for Saturday. Uh, Cindy is doing all the social media. Uh, It's doing a great job posting some pictures and stuff of that. And Ben, I'm sure, is helping with all sorts of stuff too, since they're a husband and wife combo and great supporters of the podcast. Thank you guys. And uh, she wanted me to let you know uh, Nordic Knives is going to be doing a class on Saturday, learning how to become a knife collector. And um, Russ Dodd is going to be doing a knife photography for social media class. And hmm. uh, his Instagram is RH Dodd. And um, Jocelyn Frazier is going to be there taking photos. So if, uh, you have a, a knife that you don't want to send through the mail. Uh, she can snap some photos and stuff of it right there. So uh, she That's did a, a couple of photos for me at Blade Show and they turned out really good. So make sure you check her out. Uh, the other long one is the Midwest Knife Makers Guild Hammer In in Mankato, Minnesota, August 18th and 19th. I'm still trying to sweet talk my wife into letting me go to this one. 
Nick Rossi is going to be doing forging integrals and knife design. Lots of people have said um, a Nick Rossi class is one of the most beneficial classes they've ever taken. So uh, I'd really like to try to uh, learn some stuff from him. Uh, Jason Cross is doing Damascus ring techniques. James Fleming is doing keyhole handle construction. Stephen Hall is doing wah handle techniques. That's something that I really want to get into doing some more on my kitchen knives. Uh, Tony, sorry, Tony, not sure how to say your last name. Row Road, Forge to Finish. Brian Roggenholt is doing rolling mill construction. Um, mentioned later in the show, um, Tracy and Peter Martin. Uh, put together a pretty crazy rolling mill. And I think uh, Brian had some work to do with that. Uh, Jacob Gatz is doing fitting guards and child Charles Steffi's uh, is doing fiber laser engraving. So lots of good stuff to learn over the two days there. So um, that's a lot to take in in just two days. Yeah. So they kind of do um, uh, stagger them so that you can be at everyone or, uh, people kind of break off and have their own mini classes and stuff too, because there's so much stuff there at the USA Knife Maker Shop. So, mm. uh, pretty cool. And then uh, September twenty ninth and thirtieth is the Twin Cities Knife Show in Bloomington, Minnesota. That's with the Midwest Knife Makers Guild. Also, uh, I know the guys that were there last year said it was awesome and had a lot of really good turnout. So, uh, make sure you check that out. You want to do the next one, Dan? Um, well, that depends. Is it Blade Show West? It is. It, well, I would love to talk about Blade Show West. October 13th and 14th at Salt Lake City. Um, you know, they've worked to kind of give each one of the shows kind of their own flavor. And this is, this is the culinary show. It was a great opportunity for me last year. Um, in some ways, it has been the first year of the show for a couple of years because they bounced it around. Um, this year was a great opportunity. Uh, it let it let a couple of makers really stand out that normally would have been kind of lost in the volume. It also made it way easier for people to find some makers that they wouldn't normally. Um, so it is, to be fair, it is an up and coming show but it is doing extraordinarily well. And I really appreciate that they're pushing the the culinary side at this show. Always good. Alicia and her team do a great job with, with all the shows. Uh, and you don't say that just because we're entirely dependent on her for uh, our table placement. <laughs> yeah. She's Actually, we're not, we're grandfathered in because, you know, we, we got in when, well, knife making was new, but <laughs> um all right um let's jump to dan's rants yep i got a couple and uh you know if you'd caught me earlier in the show earlier in the evening i'd be frothing at the mouth clearly i'm a i'm a little more subdued dan tonight but uh i'll I'll go ahead and give y'all a little bit of the backstory and then we're going to talk about why this is I'm going to be nice to you, Kyle. I'm I'm self-editing so you don't have to find this spot and clean it up. Because I got to be honest with you, this kind of behavior is vulgar producing in my hand. That I'm going to take a moment and center myself. Okay, backstory. Uh, full disclosure, Dylan Fletcher, one of the guys that mentored me when I was in the fiddleback shop, 
Um, one of his knives, the person that owned it. I, I, all right. Back, back story. Um, Bark River has, shall we say, a checkered reputation in the industry. Um, I have little to no direct interaction with them. So I cannot speak entirely from personal experience, but I don't know too many people that have had positive interactions. Again, that's, that's second and third handish information. But uh, the two players are Dylan Fletcher, one of my mentors who makes really, he taught me how to do clean, precise lines. Generally, he does 20 of each pattern and then he retires the pattern. Uh, these Everything he makes is a very limited run. It, it, it's still not clear, but for some reason, one uh, somebody that owned one of his knives sent it to Bark River to be sharpened for reasons that I, I don't understand and haven't been made clear to me during the sharpening process. Uh, Bark River not just changed the grind, but moved what appeared to be a saber grind up to about a three-quarter grind. And in the process, removed uh, Dylan Fletcher's maker's mark. And for reasons that I even more do not understand, uh, they replaced placed his maker's mark with their own. Um, the customer, the person that owned Dylan's knife, upon receiving it, reached out to Dylan to have it, quote unquote, fixed. This brings up several moral conversations that I feel like we should have. Um, the first is I have a, a, a fix it or replace it policy. But at what point does, does the maker's responsibility end? Like at what point does, has someone changed that knife enough that it's no longer your knife? This is a great example of you reground the knife to the point that you have changed the grind. That's not my knife anymore. Um, Dylan had the very understandable response of, no, I'm not going to remark that knife for you. That's not the knife I made. Had you sent it to me to be sharpened or to have maintenance done, then it would have been continuously mine and clearly I would have done anything to make it right. There is some gray zone in here and everybody's got to kind of form their, the place where they they can look at themselves in the mirror. But generally, um, if you change the shape or the grind of my knife, it's not my knife anymore. And there's some gray zone here. My general perspective is once you bought the knife, it's your knife. You can do whatever you want with it. But if you can want to continue for it to be a dogwood, if you want to continue to enjoy the benefits of being in the dogwood family group, we don't need names. Um, if you change the geometry I put on it, if you change the shape, then that's not my knife anymore. And I do not feel obligated to warranty any of the work to it. Uh, if you wanted that kind of work done on it, you should have come back to me, especially in my case, because I do a free spa service. I'll clean and sharpen 
any knife I've made for the low, low cost of the shipping to get it to me and back and back to you. So I feel comfortable in saying if, if, if somebody changes the shape of the grind of your knife, you are no longer obligated to warranty that. And one great point that get brought up on this is if they're removing enough steel to change the grind, you have no idea how hot that blade got. You don't know if they burn the temper out of that. Somebody else burns the temper out of your blade and then you're supposed to warranty it. That doesn't fly with me. Let's touch on your responsibilities about working on another maker's knife. Um, if it's a marked knife, you know, we can talk about production companies and it is what it is. But if it's a marked custom maker's knife, uh, my first mentor, uh, Mark Hopper, he had a hard rule that if it was a marked item, he wouldn't touch it. That was somebody else's art, and he did not feel that he had the right or the authority to change their art. If it's a marked knife, it should go back to the maker. If they're dead, that's between you and God. He would not touch another man's custom work. You can argue there's some gray zone in there about sharpening, touching up blemishes. At some point, it's really between you and God, but you do have to accept a little bit of responsibility that if it, if it's a marked knife, if it's a custom knife, you you really should guide the, the client back towards whoever originally made it because that's not your art. For a lot of guys out there, this is an exaggeration, myself included, but you know, you you don't touch up the Mona Lisa. You know, you you don't recarve uh, Michelangelo's stallion. These are clearly exaggerations, but when it's your not your work, with the possible exception of sharpening, I'm not talking about regrinding, just putting a new edge back on or touching up a blemish, fine. On a business side, if it's not my knife and I mess it up, I'm on the hook to replace that knife. In Bark River's case, they shouldn't have touched it to begin with. But as soon as they took away enough steel to change the grind, the answer is, I have ruined your knife. How can I make this right? Not, I put my mark on something I didn't make and send it back. As a maker, if you're going to touch another man's work, you're, you're taking on a certain amount of liability. If it's your knife and you mess it up, you just make them a new one. If it's somebody else's knife and you mess it up, you're on the hook for replacing that knife. And as we all know, that is not necessarily going to be cheap or the finest moment in your life. So these are just some things to, to think about before you you start taking on other people's work. And, you know, if a customer comes to you with one of your knives that have clearly be reground. I mean, again, it's between you and God. Don't be afraid to say, that's not my knife anymore. And one of the easiest examples to make is, I don't know how hot this got when they ground it. I don't know if they properly kept it cooled. They may have burned the heat treat out of this. This knife was designed to have a certain blade geometry. They've now removed a certain amount of material. It will no longer function the way I intended it to be. These are some positions you can take. In the end, it's between you and God. But if somebody has significantly changed the geometry or the shape of the knife that I made, it, 
it's not my knife anymore and it doesn't fall under my warranty. Yeah. And uh, that's most of what I got to say about that. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I do have one more thing to say. If you didn't make that knife. Like we can talk about some of the gray zone behind like a mid tech. But if you or one of your representatives did not make every part of that knife and you put your maker's mark on it, may you burn in hell. May you burn in hell. And I'm not talking about like the kind of warm Southern sundress hell. I'm talking about the cold frozen heart Yankee hell. I'm talking that 10th lint ring. I'm talking about the special hell. And you all know what I'm talking about. If you put a maker's mark, your maker's mark on a knife that you didn't personally. And well, from a custom side, if you or someone in your shop did not personally make every part of that knife, don't you put a custom maker's mark on it. Mid-techs, clearly, there were agents working under your your umbrella. There's some gray zone there. That's why we're honest when we make a, a mid-tech versus a, a, a custom knife. But if you didn't make it, don't you put your filthy, stinking hands on it, and especially not a maker's mark. There is some gray zone in this industry, but slapping your mark on a knife that somebody else made, there is no excuse for that. That will take you directly to the special hell. Okay, now that, that really is all I got to say about that. <laughs> all righty. Um, and y'all get a two for this year or this, this episode, because as some of you, I think the two of y'all that listen, that follow me may know, um, my Facebook account got hijacked, um, hacked, I believe is, is what you kids say these days. And, um, they hacked my account and then they changed both the password and the email address on it. In the span of about two minutes at uh, 145 in the morning, Facebook was kind enough to, to send me notices that this stuff was being done. Now, they didn't wait for me to respond and let them know if that was kosher or not. They just went ahead and made those changes. So I lost access to, to Facebook, my both my personal and my corporate Facebook accounts. Um uh, I went through the the process to try and recover that and, and, and had a tantrum. And my wife clearly saw that I was behaving irresponsibly and had missed something. And really just a cooler, calmer head that could actually read um, was needed for this situation. So she, too, tried to go through the steps. And it really came down to this this beautiful little logic loop of, oh, your account's been hacked. No problem. We'll, we'll lock it out and reset it. Um, just give us the new password. Oh, the password's been changed. Uh, foo, foo, it messed up. Foobard. Foobard. Yep. <laughs> um, it, it turned into this, this circle of, um, you can't get into your account. Just give us the information to get into your account. You can't get into your account. Uh, I, I tried for about six hours to find an interactive anything that could help me with this. And I just kept getting redirected to maybe this article will help you. I clearly, I, I have some bias on this. 
But uh, I had already gotten to the point where I was thinking I need to save the pictures and anything that really I value out of Facebook because it has run its course. A long time ago, they barred me from doing any sort of advertising or boosting posts or any of that BS because um, I made knives. Um, and very rapidly, for the last couple of years, it's just been a placeholder. Um, really, I just do not get any commercial value out of it. There for a little while, it was a cheap way to make a pseudo website. Um, but at this point, you're you're lost in the noise and the people that are on Facebook, the volume, it's it's not a, a really viable market, especially for the 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 handmade custom market. And um, if something goes wrong, they ain't going to be any help for you. And a few people talk about, well, it's free. What do you expect? Remember this. It's not free. You have traded your personal information, which Facebook has sold to countless corporations. They've embedded cookies. They have tracked all the places you go, all the things you do, and collected that information and sold it to corporations. Facebook is not free. You are trading your personal information in return for a interactive bulletin board with the great advantage of when something goes wrong, there will be no support for you. Keep it up if you want to have it as a placeholder. But my advice is to back up anything that you've got on your Facebook account that really has value and just shell Facebook. Um, those of you that are old enough to know about MySpace. And then those of you that are young enough to know about MySpace as a meme, um, <laughs> Facebook's there. Um, it's run its course. Um, get your data out while you can. Side note, um, those of you that are listening that are still on Facebook, you want to help your old Uncle Dan out, feel free to uh, tag it as this isn't really Dan. Um, I have no reason to believe that Facebook will look or care, but who knows? So this is Dan's rants. Um, don't put your name on other people's stuff because you will burn in hell and deserve it. And uh, Facebook, they're going to screw you. Yeah. And that's all I got to say about that tonight. All righty. I'm freaking rainbows and unicorns tonight. Yeah. Y'all just buckle in. It is about to get interesting. Yeah. Uh, you want to introduce the, or I guess I'm introducing the person for, yeah, the, no, no. for the show Man, this week. You've been carrying the weight lately. It, it, it's time for you to get a little, little FaceTime, as we like to say in the industry. Um, uh, step up. Show me, what, show me your chops. Show me what you got. All righty. Tonight we have Bob Rankin, for, and uh, he's uh, going to... Excited to get to get to know a little bit more about him and uh, learn some more about uh, some of the things he's passionate about. And um, he's been a pretty, pretty impressive fabricator and Damascus maker. So welcome to the show, Bob. Well, thank you. Uh, impressive. I'm not sure about that, but <laughs> thank you anyway. Yeah. Well done, Kyle. I uh, I appreciate you taking up the, the heavy lifting uh, last show and picking up my slack tonight. 
Yeah. Um, one of the questions we always usually like to start with is where did you grow up, Bob? I grew up right here in Marysville, Michigan, where I'm still at today. Nice. And uh, you did like boilers or something, I think I remember some of the other podcasts. Yeah, I've been in uh, the trades for about 28 years now. First 10 years as a small company with a, as a pipe fitter. Mm-hmm. And then I've been with a utility for the last 18 years, hired in as a welder. Now they call me a boiler maker. Nice. Better um, union. <laughs> what's your opinion of mill rights? Well, they try. <laughs> We had the UAW at our facility and anytime you had, anytime you wanted something really best up, you had to call in the mill rights. I'm not, I'm not going to say that, but I will (laughs) say when they combined our trades, we got the welders got welder, boiler maker and iron worker into one trade or uh, pipe fitter into one trade and the mechanics went to mill rights. So I'm just saying. Yeah. Although they did manage to like, we had this, uh, hundred thousand pound load frame that we would test connecting rods on and i don't know how they got i think they like put the machine in there and then put the wall up um but yeah they managed to take that whole top of the head turn it sideways and pull it out and uh no one died but i was i was shocked like it was looked so sketchy if there but, is any justice in the world automotive engineers will spend eternity working on the cars they designed <laughs> so the thing about it is it's usually not the engineer's fault it's the purchasing people that cost reduce your design without telling you about it yeah. so and the, the the i clearly remember the day that i could quit working on my own vehicles had an f-250 at the shop that uh needed maintenance i went to switch the uh the plugs and they had a uh had a coil for each plug mm-hmm. and you pulled the coil and then there was a 10 inch recess that went down to the, the plug to pull it. Mm-hmm. So you needed a 10 inch extension, but there was two inches from where the firewall overlapped the back of the engine and the gap where the spark plug or that hole was. So somehow I needed to get a 10 inch extension through a two inch space. Yeah. And, and that's the day I realized that I could no longer work on my own vehicles. <laughs> need one of them wobbly sockets yeah or figure out a way to fill a two-inch gap i don't know there's a lot going on tonight (laughs) (laughs) but we digress let's get back into the important things yeah um what was your first knife uh growing up my first knife growing up i had to been a swiss army knife that was everybody's first knife right um Pretty close. That is, yeah, that's the most common. Uh, my father was a sadist, so he took an old school, high carbon, imperial made Barlow, and he literally strapped that thing to a shaving razor's barber's edge and then gave it to me. <laughs> because he felt like cutting yourself and not just cutting yourself, but cutting yourself to the bone was the best way to learn to not do that anymore. I grew up, my family was meat cutters, so. Uh, I, get, I I kind of always had appreciation <laughs> for sharp knives. Do you have any dogs or I think you said your, your kid had some cats. We have three dogs. Uh, we have an old 10 year old Pomeranian, a one year rear old Pomsky and a Pomsky puppy. And then we have my son's two cats. What's a Pomsky? The- Pomeranian Husky mix. Oh, that's probably an interesting looking dog. I'm going to have to. It's like a miniature husky, about a 20 pound husky. It's kind of what they look like. Man, Barry White and wine can achieve anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Because Pomeranians are usually like 10 pounds or something like that. Yeah, right? our, our Pomeranian small and our Pomsky, she's I think 22 pounds or something like that. So, Yeah, that was either a really brave Pomeranian or a really tough Pomeranian. I believe they have medical intervention for the first set. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, for those that are new to the show, one of the pivotal, quite possibly the most important question that we'll ask tonight is about the Kyle Dan scale. Kyle met his wife on an online dating service with the intention of finding the woman of his dreams and marrying her. I met my wife at her grandmother's wake with the intention of going home with that beautiful woman. So with that understanding, how did you meet your wife and where does that fall on the Dan Kyle scale? Well, I was 17 and I met her through a blind date. Uh, my friend was dating her cousin, so that's how we met. This December, we've been married for almost 28 years. So That feels real Southern for some reason. Uh, I don't know. It just uh, just worked <laughs> out. We were inseparable after we met. Nice. It was I his friend. It was his friend, not his. Yeah, yeah. my friend was dating her cousin. <laughs> oh, oh, her cousin. Okay, yeah, that, yeah. That, that makes more sense now. <laughs> <laughs> She's not that, not that Alabama. Right. <laughs> Um, Dude, we have listeners in Alabama. What have I told you about alienating? We've just got the six listeners. If we lose the two in Alabama, <laughs> you're going to be paying the bills yourself, man. Yeah. Yeah. Chip, or Chip's down there, I believe. <clears throat> yep. So, sorry, Chip. Great. I'm never going to get invited back onto Knives Templar. <laughs> uh, I, I, can, I can get you back on. Oh, I appreciate that, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you, got, you got voted in as a... As a guest that can be on anytime. Oh, did I? Oh, that's right. I did. I no, I thought they were just throwing me a bone because they felt bad for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so um, some of the shop equipment, I wanted to talk to you. Or you mentioned that you were a certified welder with being the Boilermaker. One of that Millermatic 220 that I saw you got. I just wanted to ask you about how you liked working with that. Usually a lot of, a lot of multi- machines like leathermans they're pretty good at everything but not exceptional at one thing but are you liking that pretty well for be having a small shop oh so far I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled with it it was a fantastic purchase i got a good deal on it for what i do uh, with the damascus and stuff switching between between processes is really simple you just step on the foot pedal or pull the trigger it has two solenoids in it so you don't switch the gas or anything so it works really well for what i needed to do nice so uh, did you make a cart or something for that to hold the bottles or do they sell a, like a runner? Well, it doesn't move in the shop right now. Um, okay. The bottles are just strapped to the chain to the wall and that's tucked up underneath my bandsaw. Okay. Cool. So theoretically, if you learn to stick weld on mostly mild steel doing, um, like, let's say on a good day, you could do a roll of dimes, but it wasn't terribly complicated welds. And you've realized that there's something to this MIG TIG thing that you want to be a part of. What would you recommend as a, a good introductory, you got the concept, but no application kind of machine? Well, for the average homeowner or whatever, I, I would recommend just like my welding supply guy did separate machines, just get inexpensive machines to start and see if you can make some money with it. And then upgrade as you go i have access to extra welding machines if i need them so if mm -hmm. like one process goes down and the machine goes down i'm not completely out sorry just for the record i'm taking notes not to text <laughs> my girlfriend <laughs> um, 
Yeah, because the- I, uh, I used to be able to pull a pretty good bead with a stick, but that's not practical for some of the fine welding that I want to start doing with like putting metal pommels on the back of knives and that sort of thing. Well, what you can do if you have a uh, DC straight uh, stick welder, you can TIG weld with that also. Okay. Yeah. You yeah. just scratch start it. You get a whip and clamp the the stinger and you reverse, go straight polarity, clamp the uh, stinger, you know, on, and then just use that, get a TIG bottle, you know, of argon and yeah. you can weld with that. I, I, I started with a hundred and, Ten dollar stick welder in my shop from Amazon, so I built my first press with that and everything. Oh wow! Thank you. Yeah, almost any uh, TIG welder comes with a the hand thing for a stick welder. Yep. Um, I don't know why, or I guess it's faster, um, and usually the duty cycle is a little bit more for the the stick welding. But um, yeah, so. Um, yeah, I was mainly, you had mentioned that earlier that it actually had a high frequency start. I I had saw on their, on it that I thought it was a lift start where you're supposed to you touch it. You can do that also. A lot of times the TIG machines have all those different settings, scratch start, lift start, or high frequency start. Yeah, the the high frequency was really nice with the, the foot pedal uh, being able to go. Yep, helps keep your tungsten sharper, yeah. longer. Yeah, and you... Make sure if you guys are grinding tungsten to have a separate wheel for it. Don't uh, don't be contaminating your your stuff. And also, uh, Noah Bloomberg and I were he would he uh, in his automotive shop. Somebody was grinding aluminum on their wheel, and uh, he was like, "These savages that I work with it was like I had to deal with that all the time when I was working in the the factory. People just go up like, "Oh, it's a stone jerk." like you're gonna kill us <laughs> and if you guys don't know aluminum when it's in a stone like that it'll heat up and it'll actually throw it'll actually explode the wheel the stone wheel so don't grind on something that's not for aluminum usually uh, just stick to sandpaper i know some uh some guys that um accidentally created close enough uh thermite um grinding carbon steel and aluminum on the the same machine with the same catch mm. yeah that's not a good idea um so you had mentioned that or the 110 dollar welder was their first hydraulic press did you have some plans or did you how did you go about doing those hydraulic presses well so i built the frame the first time i just kind of wung it okay. uh, but i thought i needed i laid out the parts i needed and everything of course the cylinder and all that but then I found the scrap material and uh, the beam I chose, I wasn't strong enough. So I had to rebuild it again later. Okay. Then, and then I saw the, or I think I saw the second one where do you, or it looked like you had thought out the hydraulics pretty well. Did you was, did you get some help from one of the other union people or? No, oh. I was, I was a pipe fitter for 10 years. So okay, that, that stuff comes pretty simple to me. You know, I, I, I've worked on equipment and, uh, steam and everything else so that was pretty easy okay um, purpose building it for knife making uh, what were some of the things that that you intentionally designed in or what were some things that uh other than the the strength of the beam that on phase one to phase two you changed actually i just that's all i really changed from one to two was the strength of it so it didn't flex as much the problem i had was the first one it flexed and then of course the billet would come out curved you know you flip it over and I, I learned to work with it I, and 
but this I'm using the same dies and everything that I had on the first one. So, yeah, because it's kind of the open sea. Yeah, I wanted that intentionally so I could get around it and make different dies and intentionally, you know, that was my whole plan from the beginning with it. <laughs> yeah, I know there's seems to be two pretty big camps like the coal iron sea type and then the like fully enclosed. I, de- uh, I definitely took imp- inspiration from coal, I'm sure. Yeah. But that was in 17, so they were just getting started, too. Yeah. I yeah. assume the C-type just gives you more versatility. I think so. Um, I think there's advantages to both after watching. I didn't think about it um, at the time that a lot of them H-style presses, people are going from the side of them anyway still. But I, I just I needed something to save space. So I've been working out of a two-car garage since then that we still park mm-hmm. in. So um, I, I custom built my hydraulic tank to fit on the beam itself, you know, just to try to save space anywhere I can. Yeah. Kind of the biggest disadvantage to the C1 is that you just have to have a lot more material to make sure it's rigid enough because it's wanting to open up uh, where the H1, it, it doesn't want to flex because you're supporting it on both sides. I definitely underestimated 24 tons when I built the first one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. When we would do seat poles and stuff with the hydraulic cylinders, uh, they were 10,000 pound actuators and 10,000 pounds can really do a lot of damage really quick. Pretty crazy. Um, and then the other one of the other things that I saw that you made that was pretty cool, um, the PID controller you have on your forge. Are you still liking that pretty well? Oh, yeah. I, I love having that on there. That's uh, for a couple of reasons. I can turn the manually onto low. So when I reach into the forge, I run a um, Venturi system, so it, it blows out pretty good. Um, but I can turn it on low to reach into the forge to grab my parts or whatever, you know, and then turn it back on. And it also holds within a couple degrees. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that was really cool uh, hearing you talk about it a few years ago. I was wondering how you still still like that. Uh, have you thought about doing any more stainless with it or uh in the future i just don't have the time right now and i i I ruined a couple hundred dollars in material so far so i'm sure i can ruin lots more (laughs) nice uh i was talking to peter martin he invited me up to his shop in wisconsin he goes i love to wreck other people's material (laughs) (laughs) yeah so yeah there's there's got to be some correlation between uh that and inside every eight inch chef's knife there's a three inch paring knife right Yeah, I still haven't quite figured out how I where I wrecked up my uh, Nikiri, how to make it into something still usable. So I have to see about that. Yeah, the buffer threw it into the gr- or into the stand uh, right before Blade Show. It was a that was a rough one. Took a big huge chunk out of the thin edge. I guess that's a lot better than throwing it into you. Yeah, see yeah, right there, true. glass half full. <laughs> <laughs> um. You also had a pretty neat little twist fixture that looked like it was from like used like a pipe threading. Yeah, I just uh, it was one of the things I cobbled up real quick trying to figure out some twist and uh, use a pipe threader to turn it, and it worked pretty well. Well, the the pipe fitter used a pipe threader to uh, to make something <laughs> turn. <laughs> you learn to appreciate those after you threaded enough pipe by hand. <laughs> yeah, uh, and was that something you put together yourself, or did that uh, did you find that somewhere? No, it was just something I cobbled together with parts I had laying around, and mm-hmm. then I just used one of them porta ponies for the rip from rigid for to, for the power head. Yeah, mm-hmm. the um, 
when the guy was doing the gas line for my heater in the shop, uh, it had like a the rigid had like a chip collection bucket and like yep. the oil at the bottom had like a little hand pumper thing that you could squirt up on the threads. I was like, that's ingenious. Yeah, they uh, work really well. Yeah, so all the chips would fall in there and the oil would fall down and then it would like separate it and then it'd have oil at the bottom and you could squirt it up for the, the dye as it's cutting, Dan. So that's complicated pretty, engineer talk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, it's, it's not that complicated. No, that, that's actually but, pretty brilliant. To, yeah. Recycle the oil. Yeah. Even like power threaders are the same way where they collect the chips and strain the oil out of it. Okay. So how did you get into making Damascus? Probably like everybody else, uh, watching Forged and Fire and then watching Alex Steele on YouTube. And one day at work, I said to the guy I'm working with, you know what? I'm going to build a forge today. So that's what I did. Nice. So you, um, you just went all straight in. I wanted to make Damascus. The first thing I did was make a billet Okay. And before I even made a knife. I can appreciate that, that the, the passion was the material, not necessarily the application. Yeah, being a welder, I, I like the idea of the welding aspect of it and just as after i could see the people i can actually do that in their garage I thought, hey i can do that you know so and i pounded out one seven layer billet that i finally got to stick after i ruined a bunch of material by hand and then i decided i was building a press um this may sound a little smart ass and I, I hope you forgive me but there's there's absolutely some depth to it um why are you still making the mass i enjoy the process mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy the process of it um one of the best things about doing that is I make it and I sell it also, and I get to see what other makers do with it. So the community part of it has been fantastic. Being able to be that seed. Yeah. And um, just to meet all the different people and, and see different people's, different people's styles and something I might have never done that way with it. So that's, that's I find that part a lot of fun. Yeah. Dan and I uh, don't really work too terribly much with Damascus. We mainly are more of the higher end stainless steels. I just hate dealing with the rust aspect of most of it. And I still haven't been able to cough up enough money for some dam of steel in a, for a kitchen knife. <laughs> Part of it is the, the kitchen knife industry. And for me, yeah, I forged my first knife with uh, Mark Hopper. And then I apprenticed with uh, Fiddleback Forge doing stock removal. And as a young maker, I found myself in a position of I could try and trade elbows with these guys that have been in the industry for 20 years that are masters, or I could move into materials that they can't work in. And there was a whole lot more pie for me to try and take a bite out of. Right. Um, so to some degree, it was just it was just cold numbers for me. Now that uh, now that I've got some breathing room, I've got to admit that I've I've bought an anvil and a couple of hammers and I got a forge coming and I might have might have gotten a little twitch about wanting to get a, a little artistic and start uh, coming a hypocrite and going back to, to some of the folded steels and that kind of thing. Just I love the aesthetics of it. That's probably the best part. Right. And for me, it's the challenge of making it that really drew me to it. And it's probably why I continue to do it is, it's always a challenge to try to figure out something new or to recreate a pattern. I don't take notes. I should start taking notes on how I get a certain pattern. Yeah. And yeah. And I, I balance, I've got, especially on the kitchen side, I've got guys that are pure performance. They do not care what it looks like. 
they would prefer a, a flat, relatively flat finish that is going to just take abuse and look good. They, they want Magna Cut, they want S35VN, they want a tumble finish, and they want to use the hell out of it. And then I've got the guys that's a growing market for me that they want something more artistic, something that's going to stand out. And, and that's kind of what's gotten me into the, okay, I'm going to start swinging a hammer. Right. Well, that and the, the three consecutive shoulder surgeries so that I can now swing a hammer. <laughs> that helps. Huh? Are you still going to be fighting so you can tear your shoulder up again or? Yeah. Matter of fact, I got back on the mats today, man. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I've, I've been, I've been, I've been carrying some stuff lately. It, it, I've had a little bit of a rough time. And, uh, one of the jujitsu guys is getting ready for his first judo tournament. And a friend of a friend found out that I'd gotten cleared to get back on the mat. And they just reached out and said, Hey, you know, can, can you come work with him? And we just did about an hour and a half of some drills and fitting in. And I got to admit, the sun was brighter. The birds were a little clearer. I, I am truly a better human being if I can get on the mats four or five times a week. So I probably won't be competing at the level I used to. I mean, that's some of it is age and some of it is time commitment. But yeah, I'm I'm a better person if I get back on the mats. And if you're going to train, you might as well go to a tournament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Little bit of a loaded question, but. Some of it is for my own education, and some of it is for general population. Forge welding versus Damas, um, those terms have gotten kind of blurred. Is there a distinct difference between the two? Well, forge welding is part of making Damascus. Mm. You can for, Forge welding is just a matter of getting it hot and putting it together with heat and pressure. So it's just a process. Forge welding is the process of making the um, pattern welded steels. Mm. Um, and where did the term, or I, don't, I may be confused, but the the difference between like the old school Damas was more of a woot steel, and now what we think of as Damas is more of a the folded steels or the forge welded. Um, was that a blurred line, or was that was there a point where that shifted over? I think there's a lot of people that have their own opinions on that. That that is a loaded question. People get really defensive about it, and to me, it's like. Um, it's been called Damascus for hundreds of years, pattern welded steel, you know, whatever you want to call it, whatever you enjoy seeing. I mean, the woots, you see the um, carbide structures in the steel the same way. So I don't know. I don't know exactly the distinction. I don't think anybody really does. Maybe they do. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah I, I have heard the argument, so I didn't know if there was a, a clear defining difference or if it was just all lost to history. Yeah, I think there's there was a city named damascus it was kind of like kind of like yeah it's there's it's in syria yeah there's sham so if you ever have a customer um and they send you paypal don't ever let them put on there for damascus <laughs> you, you'll get flagged they'll think it's a terrorist transaction and um get it'll get held up i had to happen yeah. very <laughs> when really? i first started doing this yeah i had to explain to them what damascus was like uh lots of people the french champagne you can only call it champagne if it's from a certain area kind of like bourbon from the champagne valley of france yeah. otherwise it is a sparkling wine yeah just like or a prosecco which is a, i believe italian yeah yeah like bourbon's always supposed to come from kentucky stuff like nope. that so bourbon only does come from kentucky 
<laughs> yeah. Cool. Sorry, alcohol is like a thing for me. It's a yeah. Some say an addiction. Some say an appreciation. We don't look too closely. Yeah. I uh, I think I mentioned. I think I told you on one of the last shows that I found a, a old fashioned mix that was really good, uh, made by Saint Elmo's, the steakhouse that's in Indianapolis. You did, and we're going to have to do a head-to-head challenge between that and using um, uh, China China, which is actually a French liqueur, contrary to its name. I do do like my bourbons. <laughs> um, so you mentioned a little bit about coming from your welding background. You you were interested about you know how can I stick steels together? Is is that what got you into Damas uh, making Damas, or was there some sort of choir of angels pivotal moment when you knew that's what you wanted to make I, th- I think it was the interest in the welding aspect of it um also seeing other people do it on youtube and tv and thinking to myself you know i could do that and i i really had no idea how large the knife making community was at that time and that's the community is probably what kept me in it for this long i really enjoy the people there are some really good people in this community yeah it's always amazing to me how open a lot of us are sharing sharing stuff that we've spent a lot of time and effort to learn and on that note theoretically say i don't know you were talking to some grinder monkey that decides he wants to start making uh, folded steel uh, billets or pattern welded billets um what what's what's kind of the 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 abc cat equals cat kind of level what I guess I would do, I would ask how do you do it? I guess that's the the simple version. The, what I had to learn the hard way was lots of heat and patience. <laughs> you you have to let it get hot. You have to work it hot, and you have to let it all get up to temperature. And then it's it's really not that difficult after that. I, I like to make everything clean as I can and for the first weld and all that stuff. Um, I, I don't use a lot of flux. Most of my welds are dry welds now. Mm-hmm. Um, just try to get to the press fast enough and dry weld it. And it's, it's fun watching how other people do it. I would say the best spot to start is probably YouTube. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, this was what, seven years ago I started this, right? 17. I started this anyway, and there's a lot more out there now on it. Yeah. Yeah. Dennis uh-huh. Tyrell has done quite a few good videos and there's a bunch of good guys out there for your, uh, for not using flux. Do you like use dunk it in kerosene or something before you put it in or just no usually i just stack the billet and then stick it in the forge okay after you know i, I grind the forge or the mill scale off and get them clean and stuff and then i i don't stack them and leave them stacked i stack them put them right in the forge and i've had pretty good luck with that yeah when you're selecting steels to pair together are there certain qualities that you look for and i'm sorry i know some of this is kind of basic stuff but we get a we get a mix of grinders and forgers in here. I, I specifically use 1084 and 15 and 20 for my Damascus intentionally. Uh, they both heat treat in the same oil. Um, 15 and 20 just has a little nickel in it. Other than that, they're pretty similar steels. Sorry, you just answered several questions all at once, which I'm not accustomed <laughs> to. So I've got to jump down in the show notes and try to find an intelligent question. I saw you've done quite a few integral bolsters on your kitchen knives. Are there any suggestions you would do for people starting out doing those or again um them are something that you have to be prepared to fail doing 
but they're so rewarding when you get them right. Yeah, they look really cool. I I always um or I saw I talked to Charlie Ellis. It was like, do you got any tips? He's like, just have really good eyes. <laughs> it's like, what yeah. if I don't have that? Because <laughs> he he just does a lot of it by eye, and then brings it over to the surface plate, and then kind of marks some some finish lines. I would agree with that one hundred percent. Trust your eye. You can lay it out all you want, but if you follow every line, sometimes it just won't look right. Mm. Let the steel be what it wants to be. Yeah. <laughs> I I know a few and people other like, things you t- and other things you tell your client when you're slightly off spec. <laughs> I I know a few people that like I do, I don't make the same knife twice. It's like okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, you doing something once is easy. Doing it twice is that's when you're a maker. Yeah, well, I agree with that, and uh, I think there's a place for both in your making it. Uh, sometime to express yourself, and then sometime just to do a few and that are similar. Yeah. But I know that my grinding improved dramatically. Once I did like a batch of 12, just did the same process 12 times in a row and didn't have like a few days in between grinding sessions and stuff. Right. Yeah. That definitely helps uh, dial in your grinding. And I assume forging is like grinding. It's a, it's a physical skill. Like, Swing on a golf club or a bat or anything else. Um, if you're not doing it constantly, you're going to lose it. I mean, this last time after surgery, it I bought a whole bunch of 1084 and made a whole bunch of blades that no one will ever see because they went in the bucket of blades that will never be. <laughs> the mechanics I knew, but it just, if you don't keep that physical skill constant, it's going to perish. I agree with that. Um, forging knives is definitely like that. Now the Damascus for me, if I, cause I, I do, I do a mixture of forge knives or stock removal. Sometimes I'll just make the Damascus stock and cut out what I want out of it later. That's good to not mess up some of the patterns and stuff like that when you're, well, sometimes it's just economics of it. Right. Um, I don't know what I want to make at the time, but I want to make some steel or have steel on stock to sell or just have it laying around. And it's also kind of fun when I forget what it is and then I don't find out what it is till I etch it. <laughs> yeah. Then it's a surprise for everyone. Right. Nice. So I saw you were working with some cable from the Golden Eight Bridge. That looked like a pretty cool project. That was a, a really fun project. Uh, the Forge Dubai Commission direct metal to make the knives, and I got involved with making the steel of it. And uh, that was a really fun project. That was really neat to get that opportunity to work with that, that steel that was original suspension cable from the Golden Gate Bridge. So... Uh, when I saw that piece, it had like a couple of uh, little things on the backside to kind of like clamp it. Did it come like that or did you do that? Uh, no, that came like that. They sold them as souvenirs. Mm. Um, so they just cut them in chunks and put those bindings on there to hold mm. them together. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think I remember you telling Jeremy that uh, it's a simple little life that uh, when you put it in the forge, you almost got the fire department called on you. <laughs> I've made, I've done it. I've made two billets. Now I learned from the first time. Yeah. I put it, I, th- I figured I'll just burn the stuff off of it. You know, it can't be that much. <laughs> and holy moly, that, uh, that was billowing smoke out of the garage. And uh, <laughs> they grease those cables pretty frequently, don't they? <laughs> uh, it was more the, um, the galvanizing. Oh, it was, shit. Like a green smoke. That. that was awful. Yeah. 
It was oh. uh, it was pretty bad, especially being as I live in a subdivision. But nobody complained. Yeah, awful uh, so and next, awful and poisonous. Yeah, and so the second uh, one I did, I soaked it in muriatic acid and it cleaned it right off, and it went way better the second time. Yeah. All right. So if anybody's going to forge well Golden Gate Bridge, Damascus, uh, make sure you put it in some muriatic acid first. Or just commission me to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> see, right. now we're, now we're getting to it. <laughs> or do that. All right. Mr. Uh, getting ready to do Damascus. You got any more questions for him? Um, I don't think I do. Or if I do, I'm too embarrassed to ask him publicly. <laughs> well, the best tip I can give you is make friends with somebody that can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And get an invite to a shop. Well, and I've got, I, I've got such mixed feelings. Um, I've bought some billets that I've made knives out of and it went really well and I didn't have to go through the learning curve, but me being the, the stubborn individual that I am, I, I want to do, I want to do start to finish. I want to do every part of the knife even though I know that the, there's a learning curve and it is never smooth. Well, there's something to be said about that sole authorship of a knife. And I, and I completely understand that. Uh, but so far it has certainly gone better when I let someone more knowledge, knowledgeable and experienced uh, start the process for me. <laughs> so do you have a rolling mill? Not yet. I, I have the plans to build yeah. one. I'm, I've been assembling the parts. So just everything in my shop right now is a matter of space. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned him early, Peter Martin and his son, uh, Corey, they made one and, uh, they just get, or they made double the parts when they were having all of them made. And, uh, Tracy Mickley of USA knife Baker just finished it and they did a hydraulic rolling mill so he could yep. instantly reverse it, uh, with the, the hand switch and stuff. And that thing looks super cool. Um, one of the first things I learned about knife making is you can make three as quickly as you can make one. So if you're going to make one of anything, you might as well just make three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, the equipment they have at their shop is just crazy cool. And uh, hopefully I can make it up to Peter's shop sometime. Went to the Midwest Knife Makers Guild hammer in last year when Steve Schwartzer was up there and uh, Tracy's USA knife maker shop is just outfitted with every grinder you can think of heat treat ovens anything you can think of the salt bath heat treat ovens like he just has a little bit of everything i'm fortunate to have um even heat just a couple hours north of me nice. so yeah it's nice to save on some freight or something if yeah. i want to go I, my first heat treat oven i went and picked it up right from them so that was nice yeah they were my Man, first heat treat. some great guys they were my first heat treat oven too mine too and they were they were really patient with me. Why was that? Yeah, Spencer. What's that? <laughs> what, what questions did you have on heat treat ovens? Uh, I, I may have done that, some things that I shouldn't have done and some boards need to be replaced. And it's really not worth going into. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Spencer took care of <laughs> Nice. Dan, Dan abusing his tools. <laughs> I was learning the limits. <laughs> <laughs> After the show, I'll tell you about the limits I put mine to. <laughs> nice. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about handle material. Um, in a lot of your more recent knives, I've seen you use a lot of Fordite. I got a little bit of it 
over the last few years, some from the, the Jeep plant uh, over here in Belvedere and stuff like that. What do you look for in pieces of Fordite when you're to help try to make it pop? For myself, I just look at my Instagram message, Hunter from Hawk Nest Customs. He just sends me Fordite. Okay. <laughs> I have never had the opportunity to find some myself. I, that'd be nice if I could. Yeah. Back to you find somebody that knows more than you do and then take their advice. Right, right. Now, uh, I did make one out of Corvette Fordite. That was really neat to do. Um, he had some old Corvette Fordite that's pretty rare. So okay. um, I, I, I usually just use it for accent for bolsters and stuff like that. So, Yeah, it does. It looks super cool. I just haven't pulled the trigger. I, I like to put seven pins in my handle. Um, okay. Because so you like, hate yourself. <laughs> so it's... Uh, usually a little bit of a challenge for me to like get a composite handle to look good with the, the pin layout that I do. Well, with Ford, I just use black, uh, um, like, like uh, black G 10 pins and it, it kind of blends right in. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as Henry Ford said, any color you want, as long as it's black. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I was, uh, before I really started using on a lot of knives, I put it on one of my own, my everyday carry. And just to see how well it holds up. And I tell you what, that paired with bog oak, I cannot believe how well they hold up. Really? Yeah. Um, so I've heard that it, when you're grinding it, it's kind of soft with the, the sanding belt. So a couple of the guys mentioned to like uh, use a lot higher grit than you would normally use to kind of shape it. Yeah. You want to be gentle with it. It, it'll, it, it grinds really easy, but it's, I'm surprised how durable it actually is. You know, from, <clears throat> even from resistant scratches and stuff, I'm pretty shocked. Oh, because one usually doesn't equate with the other. Right. It's soft, but it's like hard. It's, it's a strange material. Well, the abrasive cuts really well. So holds up pretty well on vehicles. It's like me soft on the outside, but hard (laughs) on the inside. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I still, I still can't believe like uh, lots of, like you can usually tell who drives the vehicle if it's a male or a female by the inside of the handle, uh, with the the diamond ring, uh, cutting into the the paint all the time. My wife's car has all sorts of scratches in the the handle pole. Oh, look at me! My wife has a huge diamond ring. It's not huge, <laughs> but she manages to smack it in there. So, hey, dude, don't don't be shy. Fucking. Own that. Be proud. <laughs> you got your woman a big piece of ice. Yeah. She's worth it. She's an amazing woman. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Um, See, I got you all discombobulated thinking about your wife and how amazing she is. Yeah. Now you can't even read carbon fiber. The next line is carbon <laughs> fiber. Threw them right off. Uh, is there any carbon fiber types you like working with better? And then... Uh, the other question I had was, do you have any tricks so it doesn't make your skin itch? Well, the best trick to not making your skin itch is not to use it. Yeah. Um, I only use carbon fiber when I can't find something else I want to pair it with. But it's not one of my favorite materials materials to work with at all. I like the way it looks. But man, I hate working with it. My answers are either do it in the winter when you don't mind wearing long sleeve shirts. And I always do it at the end of the day so I can go straight home and take a cold shower. Yeah, cold shower helps, and it doesn't hurt to wear some nitrile gloves or something to keep it off your hands. That that helps a lot. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I uh, 
I like an idiot always pair it with uh white G10 liners. So oh. uh, it, they like the, the white almost instantly turns gray all the time and you end up having to like water sand it to try to get both of them to stay the color that they're supposed to. But it looks cool, right? So that's why you have to do it. <laughs> you, know, you would think a smart guy like you would learn the third, fourth, fifth time. I've done about I've done about <laughs> ten of them that way. And I, yeah, like an it, like an Alzheimer's patient, <laughs> keep doing it. Oh, this, and you're surprised every time. Yeah. <laughs> this will look this will look awesome. Do you have any tips for people doing bolsters and stuff like that? I know some people kind of put a little bit of an angle on the bolster with the the piece behind it. I'm still figuring out the segmented scales myself. You know, uh, it's a good way to use little scraps and try to and add some interest to the handle too, you know, rather than just plain, but try to keep them even. That's all you can really do. That's the tough part. Trying to keep everything even on those is the really hard part. I've, I try to remind myself that the counter angle is always zero. So if you cut something, A side is the top, B side is the bottom. You, know, you make your first cut on the next piece of material if you flip it over so B side is on the is top and you make your cut, then those two angles are going to fit. Um, and that's a good tip, especially if you just go ahead and intentionally come off of ninety degrees, make it far enough off that it's clearly tensional, intentional. Right. Um, but the the cut on the back side of your blade is always going to ma- match the cut from the front side as long as you flip it upside down. My segmented scales are always a mess until I get them glued then i did then i threw them up and line everything up and then put the knife handle on you know yeah i always make mine a little extra wide so i've got some wiggle room to right to slide them back and forth to try and get those lines to come together yeah i typically use the th- uh the masking tape and super glue for that try to get them and glue them together and then threw them up together and then then i drill my pinholes and all that stuff yep that way yeah i use the little super glue tack weld trick uh, putting um, both of them together. I'll do that. And then I still pin them as I drill them because. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I did find for pins uh, to use indi- what are they uh, like indi- uh, sizing dowel or whatever they call um, them. It's like a, it's a hardened pin. Yep. That, that and you can get them in uh, thousands of an inch difference sizes. And that really helps keep things from galling up and, you know, like use a brass pin, it galls up and after yeah. over time, those really work well. Yeah. I bought a bunch yeah. of the inch and a half hardened dowel pins uh, yep. and I put a little little piece of micarta tube or Delrin tube on there to make them a little easier to pull. Because I had a a, a couple of um, a couple of glue rubs go wrong, and I finally figured out that my pins through wear had thinned out and were allowing play. Yeah, that yeah was- the, and that was nice about those is you can get them in different sizes because mm-hmm. you know sometimes some woods you, you're your holes are going to be smaller when you drill them than it will be in the knife just from it kind of shrinks around the bit. Um, yeah. And you'll also humidity. I've had yep. some of the the natural wood, not the stabilized stuff that I'll drill it on Friday and Monday, the holes have moved, well, not moved, but the diameter has changed. And for myself, I like to etch the spine of the knife. Mm-hmm. So I have to shape the profile, of the handles before I glue them up and then etch the knife. And then so they have to fit halfway decent Yeah, for me after I etch it. That's a tight tolerance. Yeah. I'm not perfect at it. <laughs> I like to do file work. So I end up uh, always having glue or epoxy push out here. 
That's a rabbit hole I haven't gone down yet. I can see myself doing that one of these days. Well, Man, do you ever have I any questions? One, let me know. <laughs> I brought one that. of Kyle's books and I, I have gone down the rabbit hole and it's a little frustrating and I've had a tantrum already. <laughs> um, and I would call Kyle for help, but I don't want to admit that he kn- might know something that I don't. So, you know, I'm just going to figure it out myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there any any wood handles that you like? more than others any species that you particularly i think that one of my favorite woods has to be buckeye burl stabilized natural buckeye burl anything that looks cool i just i appreciate the uniqueness of it all just like the steel i make yeah yeah uh nick wheeler i saw him with some buckeye burl he would, and i had never thought about it until then like to use some of the uh s- sanding dust and mix it in with the CA glue to fill some of those voids. So you're actually using the same colored uh, wood. Um, well, I guess a good place to find Buckeye Burl I found is if you have a local guitar maker. Hmm. They use that quite a bit in guitar making. So. Huh. Good to know. I did know a guitar maker that was really close to me, but now he's in uh, Sweden. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. He, uh he used to, or he works at Navistar where I did. And uh, when Volkswagen bought him, he's doing a, a couple years over in Sweden at the, the office over there now. I think Lead Fiddle is in, pretty sure he's in Tennessee. Um, who does, he's a small time custom guitar maker that is really good to work with that I've done some stuff with. Um, yeah, they get a lot of neat looking wood in, in through their shops too. So that's. And. And what is dropped from him for him is a knife handle for me. Right, exactly. And then if you ever have people that like to make pins, they always like to come to your shop also. Because drops <laughs> for us is a pin for them. <laughs> not so much anymore. You just make a segmented scale out of it, yeah. right? Yeah, that, that's not a drop. That's a bolster. Right, yeah. or a spacer. Or, yeah. yeah. I've been keeping the, like... Uh, big jars from like the peanut butter filled pretzels and stuff. I put all the little pieces in there. I keep telling myself I'm going to do something with them someday. Still haven't. Yeah. What you're going to do is fill a bunch of jars. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, maybe one day the boys will be old enough to, to make some beads and fire steels and stuff out of all that stuff. It is a magical moment. I'm not going to lie. Um, now that Alex is out of the house, I'm, I'm starting to miss some of the, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but um, I did not appreciate that as much as I should have. Yeah. Time flies by fast. Yeah. 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 They say you get 18 summers. Um, we're already seven yeah, summers but only, deep. You, like only 12, maybe 14 of those are good summers. I mean, <laughs> a couple of them are the just sitting there not doing anything interesting summers. Yeah. The The boys are jumping in the pool and stuff that we have in the back quite a bit now. So it's starting to be pretty fun. The one is actually tall enough that he doesn't have to wear his floaty. He can actually stand on his tiptoes and keep his nose above the water. So man, I'm pretty sure it was Alex that, uh, so I, both boys, I kind of taught them how to swim and then we took them to the Y to, to polish technique and that sort of thing. He was like two foot six and the shallow end was three feet. So from my mind, it didn't matter which end of the pool you were on. It was all the same protocol. Mm. And he came back from swimming lessons, all freaked out about the, the shallow end versus the deep end. You know, I tried to logically explain to him that 
kid, it doesn't matter which side of the pool you're in. You can't touch the bottom. And uh, he got so paranoid about the deep end. And ah, this is either going to be replayed for his therapist one day or a, a sign of phenomenal parenting. But I finally just had to pick him up and throw him in the deep end. <laughs> and when he swam over, I'm like, see, it doesn't matter which side of the pool you're on, son. You got to swim. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah, no, it's definitely the therapist thing now that I hear it out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Got any more questions about Hannibal Cheryl, Dan? None that are intelligent that I'm going to admit to on on this public broadcast. (laughs) Any other uh, maker questions that we should ask? Anything that you want to share about your shop or? So the follow-up question that we have learned is, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't um, see the way I put it right back on you? So, yeah, I, <laughs> I think that the thing that people need to remember is why they're doing it and to enjoy it and um, embrace the community. Yeah. Um, we, we talk about this a little bit, but don't get in this to make money. Very few people ever make any money at this. Do it because you enjoy it you got to do this kind of work for the joy. Um, And if you really enjoy it, then there's a good chance that you'll work hard enough and you might be able to make some money at it. But at the end of the day, you've got to be able to look at what you did and say, I did that and I enjoyed it. Yeah. You have to enjoy the work and you have to enjoy the challenges and frustrations and everything that come along with it. Um, The failures, as much as the successes, you have to learn and just, the nice thing about this is that nobody will ever master it. There is always going to be something more to learn. And I try to think of it as opportunities. I mean, it's, it's cliche. Um, Edison was, uh, was talking about that it took in a thousand attempts to, to make a working incandescent light bulb. Somebody asked him about all his failures. And he said, oh, I never failed. I just learned 9,999 ways not to light a light bulb. I, I try to look at well, I've never failed. I've just had a lot of opportunities to learn something. And what's great, too, is that when you think you have something figured out, right, all you have to do is just say, go on Instagram and go look at like Kyle Royer, <laughs> you know, and think, yeah, I, I don't really know anything. Or some of these uh, Fantasy Night folder makers, some of these guys, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. Some of these guys make. Oh, if you think you know something, just post it on a forum and there'll be at least seven guys that'll tell you you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you, th- that's a little different. They, you don't know if, the, if they know what they're talking about or not, right? Oh, no, they don't. I can assure you. <laughs> Have you seen those uh, Michael Walker zipper blades that he does where it's like titanium with uh, blade steel? Oh, and he, they, like, they're yeah. like little saw teeth. And he no, I have not seen he that. perfectly fits them together and then like somehow he, forges the titanium to the steel. He does so like a negative do. positive machining and then... Yeah welds them and keeps the line clean oh, no and then kidding. he'll yeah. anodize the the little saw teeth um yeah they're crazy yeah just when you think you're a medium-sized fish you realize no 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 you're a minnow and it's not a pond it's a sea and, and but the, that's the best part is just enjoying all of it. everybody's so welcoming and eager to share you know it's a new set of challenges every day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that concludes deep thoughts from Jack Handy.
<laughs> and all of you that didn't get that joke are way too young and you should be in bed now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the, the other reasons we wanted to have you on is to, to talk about the, the fundraiser that you're doing for, um, your son and the, the, the veterans that, uh, well, yeah. it's really, we're, it's multiple fundraiser, well, or a single fundraiser for multiple, very worthy beneficiaries. So, uh, I guess I should tell you about my son first for a little bit. Um, he was, uh, born shortly after we were married at 17, he enlisted to go in the United States Navy. And then, you know, we had to sign the papers that October after he graduated, he left for boot camp. He, he was a petty officer first class in the Navy nuclear program. So he, uh, ET one was his rate. He was an electronic technician. Uh, he spent his sea duty aboard the Carl Vinson. I had some great opportunities with him on his first, uh, deployment when they came into um, Pearl Harbor, they do what's called a tiger cruise sometimes. So I flew to Hawaii, met him with his boat and took the boat back with him to San Diego. Wow. Wow. So that was pretty neat. Spent five days aboard the carrier. There's like 500 of us. They send a bunch of sailors home early from, then we take their racks and that was a great experience for me and for him and um, getting to see him, you know, getting to see him after his first deployment and everything before my wife did. So that's kind of fun. <laughs> Not that anybody's counting. Right. But it, it he was in for eight and a half years. He spent the first two years in Goose Creek, uh, South Carolina, doing nuclear school and prototype and all that. Then he went on his deployment with the Vincent, spent some time in Washington doing the reactor upgrades and stuff there while I was in dry dock for a year and a half. Went back to San Diego, and it was time for a shore duty. Um, he was going back to Charleston teaching Navy nuclear prototype for two years. So I flew to San Diego and him and I road trip back to Michigan down route 66. Um, Very cool. But unfortunately, uh, on March 20th or May 23rd, he posted his, um, DD two fourteen, which was, he got his paperwork that he's finally out of the Navy. And then on, uh, May 25th, um, we don't know why, but he, he took his own life and he's no longer with us. So, um, there's a couple different things that we have going on right now, uh, in honor of him, um, at blade show this year, some good friends of mine, uh, Chad Kimmel, Paxton, fifty fifty forge and Tyrell knife works. They decided they were going to do a, a charity knife for my family. It turns out they made two. Um, and then, uh, Grizzly forge, Lucas also donated some wood black, Horse Forge donated the wood to him. So if you want to find out about those knives, just uh, Tyrell did an amazing video on them. And um, well, they're selling tribute stickers on my website for my son. And we're going to use that money to uh, set up my forge to try to get more people involved with that, uh, to try to maybe reach some veterans or people around here that need help close to me. Uh, we're not sure where that's going to go yet exactly. And then we also set up a... Uh, a GoFundMe, my daughter did. Um, so we right now we've picked three charities so far. We're, we don't know how well we'll do with that. Um, but one of them's a cat cafe that he got his cats that he loved in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. So we're going to try to help them out some. 
Black Horse Forge. They're out of Virginia. They they do a lot of they're a veterans nonprofit where they get veterans involved in knife making and help save lives. Along with uh, Warrior Way in Ohio, they kind of do the same type of thing, the suicide hotline. And so we're going to try to work with them and uh, maybe teach some classes or something in the future here and try to raise some money to try to help some other people. And uh, Kyle will have the, the links for all that in the show notes. So everybody that's interested, take a minute and, and the links are there. Yep. Yeah, the uh, the two knives that they, that Dennis and... Chad and Paxton made are are super cool. They had uh, well, there's some history to them. Yeah. I mean, we, we we've kind of skipped the backstory on the, the materials, and for better or worse, a, a lot of what people love is the story behind a knife. So, I mean, let's, I'd, I'd like to touch a little bit on where those materials came from. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Chad sent me some of the stuff that they used for that. In the the layers and the the steel, there was some steel from uh, Tower Two from the World Trade Center, and then one of the or the pins in the in the knives was forged from an arrestor cable. I'm not exactly sure what that is. Anna. So the arrestor cable is uh, from the Eisenhower that uh, Tyrell's son served aboard. Okay, and that's what uh, that's the cable that catches the jets as they land. Oh, okay, um, cool. Uh, yeah, that was from the USS Eisenhower. I've always been super General Eisenhower, and uh, our family was uh, my my mom was born on his actual birthday in Salzburg, Austria, in World War II. So he was actually the general on base when she was born, and uh, my grandmother was like a hundred pounds, and uh, she delivered like a over ten pound baby. And I guess General Eisenhower said he needed to beat that woman. So uh, <laughs> he actually held my mom when she was born. So uh, lots of Eisenhower fan uh, stuff was always around our our house. So um, and then I uh, Chad said some of the blue dyed tiger maple and the white oak are on the, the two knives and the white oak was one of the last trees planted by George Washington on his estate. So that's pretty cool too. Yeah, it was really neat. That was uh, very nice of them to donate that for the project. And, so yeah. it's, it's, these are blades with a purpose and a story. So Chad and Paxton also made uh straight layer Damascus with 22 layers. And that's to represent project 22 is what they're calling this um, knives. Um, because 22 veterans a day take their lives. Yeah, it's crazy um, to think that that number is so high. Uh, and from what I understand, is actually higher than that right now. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to touch on a couple of things. Um, so for a lot of guys that get out, in my case, we were a scout platoon. We were small, but on Friday, I had 50 buddies that not only would die for me, that was a small thing. I had 50 guys that would kill for me. And on Monday I was by myself. A few days later I was at school and it was an entirely different environment. People had, from my perspective, really skewed opinions on what was life and death and what was really important. So 
even guys that make the tradition. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even guys that make the transition well, they're they're going to struggle a little bit. Your buddy that's fresh out, people that have just first come out, man, reach out, check on them. Um, we, uh, among our group, we, we try to keep an eye on the guys that have first come out because it is a really hard transition. Um, I don't know now, but when I was in, nobody prepares you for that. From what I understand, uh, talking to a lot of his sailor friends, brothers and sisters, they don't prepare you at all for that. And um, especially in his division, they actually have a higher suicide rate than the national average by almost double. Um, the demand for perfection all the time, the constant pressure, I guess it, it really adds up on these sailors. My son had come home at the beginning of May, end of April, and everything seemed fine. He was happy. He was making plans for the future. He had a good job lined up. That day, May 25th, you know, I was getting ready. I was supposed to go to Blade Show. That afternoon, he went shopping, grocery shopping. Um, and uh, I came in from the shop, took a shower. He was in the kitchen with my wife, laughing and joking. And we went to bed, and 45 minutes later, he's gone. And we have, there was zero indications and there was zero, nothing on social media, nothing on his computer, nothing on his phone, nothing that his friends could believe. Um, from what I understand, that division of the Navy is the hardest one to get into, top 1% of the top 1%. From all the stories I received, he was the best of them. So we, we'd have no idea what happened or why. It's really hard. So I, I, I don't know how I can help prevent it from happening again. But I have to believe there's other stories like mine out there to help somebody to understand that they're not alone, that you didn't do anything wrong. Um, like I've, I've told people before, if I had to relive that day a hundred times out of a hundred and I had to bet everything I have on aliens land on my front lawn or this happening, I would have bet on aliens every single time. I had absolutely zero idea that this was going to happen. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, there's two sides of this story. Uh, one is for the parents to know that they're not alone. And uh, for the servicemen to know you can reach out. Um, and remind those of us that are out, check in. You don't have to carry it alone. You're not alone. There are people that would uh, do anything to help you. I mean, anything. I would trade places with them in a minute. Um, being a parent of adult children, uh, one of my greatest joys of being a parent has always been not only to have good kids, but to raise people that I like as people, that I like as human beings, that I respect, and, and that... Um, that are my heroes. Both my kids are my heroes. They're both amazing people. Yeah. Um, not, uh, not the way we usually, uh, wrap up a show, <laughs> but, uh, um, if, if you want to try to help, 
Um, again, the um, the links are going to be in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, as I understand it, um, tickets are going to be sold for the knife. We're going to dodge some of the political termage stickers. And, uh, stickers. Yeah, they had um, <laughs> uh, a friend had his uh, tattoo artist friend make up some stickers to commemorate Bob. And so uh, if you buy a sticker, every sticker you buy puts you in the running for this set of knives. Yeah. Yeah. And you can find those at on Bob's website, Bob Rankin, custom knives.com. There'll be a link in there too, but I wanted to make sure that you got in the audio also. Yeah. If, uh, clearly uh, a, a step one to help out is to buy some stickers or the GoFundMe. Also the GoFundMe that's going to help, uh, hopefully bring veterans into our community um, and help uh, people match with their pets, you know, cause that, uh, if you look at my son's social media, all he had was pictures of his cats, you know, um, yeah, he loved his cats. Step two is to go fund me and, you know, take 15 minutes today. Uh, if you don't know who your representatives are, you can find it online in five minutes. Take another five minutes, send them an email. Let them know that the VA is failing our vets. Not the doctors, not the nurses, not the people out there trying to help our vets. But the bureaucrats, uh, let them know that it's unacceptable. Let them Remind them that you vote and this is important to you. I, I'm not a veteran, but when I had to call the VA, the first thing that you get the answer is the phone is that if you're having suicidal thoughts to seek help, now that's a problem if that has to be the very first thing that you're introduced to. I think the least they could do personally is to have live people answer the phone. Probably other vets would be the best way to do it. So if somebody is in distress, that they have somebody to talk to right away, not sit on hold. When I signed the contract, the understanding was if if I got broke, you were going to fix me. Well, we got guys out there that have gotten broken and nobody's fixing them. And nobody's going to until some politicians start to feel some pressure. So, And it's not just your combat veterans. It's the other parts of the service that have extraordinarily high demands on them um, it, that are potentially unrealistic or bad leadership. There's a problem with that in the Navy also, you know, or the leaders uh, I've heard of in the one division that uh, demanding, I think one of his friends told me that uh, perfection was expected. Excellence will be accepted on a case by case basis. And a few months later, that idiot was fired because he wasn't following the procedures. So that whole do as I say, not as I do thing. And well, and uh, there's a stress creates a lot of the blanket term is PTSD. And that can be the stress of night patrols in a hostile environment. That can be the stress of if, if I make a mistake, there could be a meltdown and I'm going to kill my shipmates. I mean, right. It's, it's stress. It's not how you get it. I mean, there are very few jobs in the military that don't produce stress. All of them are life and death situations. It's, and it's the same thing in construction, right? And 
heavy industry and a lot of different people. Yeah. That constant uh, worrying about other lives and stuff that can really weigh on you. If any of you guys ever need to talk about any of that stuff, you can reach out. I know I uh, would try to do anything that I could to talk to anybody that would reach out. So I'm sure Dan and Bob probably feel the same way. Absolutely. Um, you don't have to do this alone. You don't, you're not alone. That's what friends and family are for. Um, and then depending on where you live, uh, if you, if, if you're struggling and you need to find something, I was talking with Steve from Black Horse Forge and, uh, he worked with the VA, they did brain studies and th- they could see that the, the therapeutic effect on people working with steel, like we do compounding on steel. So th- there's a lot of them around the country. Hopefully we'll get more. Um, he has affiliate forges all around the country. Uh, if you're in Ohio, uh, Warriors Way does the same type of thing. They have a hotline for suicide. And there are resources out there that uh, we can help build your community. I know that when you get out, you're missing that, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't represent myself in a court of law. I don't do my own taxes. Man, I'm not ashamed to get help from a professional when I go to court or when I do taxes, don't worry about getting help from a professional when you got other problems. Um, I did. Um, one of the harder things I've ever done, <clears throat> but also one of the best. Yeah. <sighs> you guys are not alone out there. Uh, all right let's just say good night dan <laughs> yeah want me to do the outro spiel yeah let's uh let's close this one out while i still got my dignity all right we can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com you can keep in touch with uh listen to us anywhere you're listening to all this stuff you can uh keep in touch with dan eastland of dogwood custom knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com and he's dogwood custom knives on facebook and instagram uh, keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives at cagedailyknives.com, Cage Daily Knives on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And uh, I believe Bob, you're Bob Rankin Custom Knives on Instagram. With- yeah, Bob Rankin Custom Knives on Instagram, uh, Bob Rankin Custom Knives.com. And that's, you'll find me that way. And we'll have all that stuff in the, uh, in the show notes. So good night, guys. And uh, we'll, we'll see you later. Well, let's take it to the end. That's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're gonna talk about.